0: This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the story of the 2013 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape
1: and heard around the world, now streaming only on Hulu. Hey everybody, it's Brittany Luce, and thank you so much for tuning in to It's Been a Minute from NPR. Before you dive into this episode, I have one small ask. If you have a spare 10 minutes, Help us out by completing a short anonymous survey about how we've been doing with the show. Tell us what you like and how we could improve at npr.org slash IBAM survey. You'll be doing all of us here at IBAM a huge favor. That's npr.org slash IBAM survey. Thank you so much. hello. Hello. I'm Brittany Luce, and you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, a show about what's going on in culture and why it doesn't happen by accident. This Sunday, what happens in Las Vegas will make history. Let's get ready to rumble. For the first time ever, Las Vegas will host the Super Bowl. And the halftime headliner is none other than Usher Raymond IV. And I, being one of his biggest fans, must mention that my man recently closed out a blockbuster 100 show residency in Las Vegas. Oh my God. Now, you may think this is all very convenient, but it's actually the culmination of a years long makeover for Sin City to transform it into an entertainment capital for, quite frankly, people like me, millennials. My guest today is our very own NPR senior editor, Bilal Qureshi. He's one of the best culture thinkers I know, and he's been making lots of trips to the desert oasis to cover the rise of New Vegas. From the revamped residencies to its transformed skylines and bus lines, he says Vegas isn't just seizing this Super Bowl moment, they planned for it. And with the world watching, Vegas is ready to shed its image as a place of cloudy memories and declare itself the new destination for experiences you'll never want to forget. Bilal, welcome back to It's Been a Minute.
2: So nice to be here, always.
1: Oh my gosh, I'm excited because I really feel like you're giving me like a report back. We're talking about Las Vegas today. I am like a complete Vegas neophyte. I know nothing. And I feel like Usher's Vegas residency... And his Super Bowl halftime show, which, you know, the Super Bowl is happening this year in Vegas for the first time. He's doing the halftime show. I think it's going to be amazing. But both of those things, his residency and his halftime show, feel very New Vegas to me. If this iteration of Usher is New Vegas, what about old Vegas? Like, what has Las Vegas traditionally symbolized in the past?
2: I mean, I've written this essay about Vegas, and I was thinking a lot about being a kid of the 90s, as those of us who are late millennials now are. And the movies that really were the 90s that I grew up with, which include Showgirls. I mean, I have to bring up, you know, that (laughs) and even like, you know, the sort of shotgun wedding imagery and even leaving Las Vegas, which Nicolas Cage won an Oscar for, which was very depressing and sad. The notion that, you know, people go to this extreme place. It's an extremely, frankly, unappealing place. It's ugly, kind of. People are bleary.
1: Right. There's no windows in the casinos. So you never know what time of day.
2: There's no windows. Like, it's this whole idea of a kind of terrible place, which, again, people enjoy. And I don't want to make light of that at all because it's been an important place for people for a long time. But it just didn't strike me as a place worth, you know, coming from the East Coast, investing really a lot of dollars to go to because it's still a long flight.
1: Real. Some of the old Vegas that you're referencing to me makes me think of, like— bachelorette parties where, you know, everyone comes back home not speaking to each other or, like, the hangover. Even, like, fear and loathing in Las Vegas. I feel like That all feels very old Vegas, but also I feel like there's even, like, an older, more glamorous Vegas to a certain degree.
2: Yeah. Connected to, like, I think mobster era, too, and sort of, like, lounges and cabarets and—
1: Like Rat Pack. Rat
2: Pack, yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I
2: do think, though, that there have always been, obviously, people who've gone, a lot of them cynically and kind of ironically, they find it kind of, like, Mm -hmm. an absurd thing. So I think that what I'm saying, I've sort of seen in the last couple of years of going now a few times, is that— a lot of people going now are not going ironically. They're going because it's offering like pretty top tier entertainment and culture. If you consider, you know, pop music of this kind culture, which I certainly do.
1: Yeah, I wonder like we talked about the image of Las Vegas' past. What is the image that you're describing? Like the image that the city is Trying to create now?
2: Well, I think one of the biggest changes has been, frankly, just in the built environment of, of the city. Because I think we have images of some of these like old resorts and stuff. Many of them are actually getting torn down. It's a pretty <laughs> yeah. big construction zone. And the thing that's like now towering over, not even towering, I don't know what a sphere does, but the thing that's kind of <laughs> floating <laughs> over the city is this gigantic screen with like emojis the size of like Godzilla looking down at people. And it's a, it's a video screened new huge piece of architecture the sphere the sphere yeah kind of like the needle in seattle or the tower in toronto Uh or whatever like that kind of monument and the allegiance stadium where the super bowl will be played which has been called like the death star because that (laughs) looks like this black giant sort of menacing thing these are new sort of things that you observe when you drive in that it's not just that cliche strip of like like the
1: timey the red and yellow like like flashing lights sort of thing
2: it's a very different like physical environment and then on top of that you're looking at gigantic posters of Wu-Tang Clan, Adele, Usher, and U2. And these are the big residencies that we're just talking about. But there's also a lot of mini residencies like Kylie Minogue. Right. She took the Padam era and like took it to Vegas. So there is a lot of that iconography that you're seeing inside like You know, while you're looking at the horizon of the sphere at Legion Stadium and, like, much newer, much more stylish, frankly, hotels than we're used to.
1: Obviously, we've talked a lot about how entertainment has pretty much always been a major draw to Las Vegas for tourism. But, you know, even thinking about how—I don't know, I wonder how tied this turn toward entertainment is to the fact that, like, gambling— It's not something that you only really have to do in a casino anymore. You can do sports betting or different types of gambling at home. There are more uh, casinos in places like Michigan or Pennsylvania or Indiana. And I wonder how much that kind of contributes to it as well. Like Vegas happened to kind of reinvent itself to a certain degree.
2: I mean, we've talked about the cultural shift that happened with COVID and kind of maximal entertainment. But I think the other big marker for Vegas to the idea of New Vegas, if we're going to go with that, is the 2018 Supreme Court decision that legalized sports gambling in lots of other states across the country. And there was a concern that Once that happened, how does that affect Vegas? And ultimately, that's the reason that the NFL moved in, because basically for a long time, pro sports obviously didn't want to be in Vegas because of the betting, sports betting culture. And so that is one of the reasons that the first Super Bowl is happening now in Las Vegas. And what that means is that the sporting industry, big sports, major sports are now in Vegas in a way that they never were before. And we've talked about concerts and entertainment, but let's not deny what a huge draw big sporting events are. You know, it reminds me, um, I lived for several years in Dubai, which is another city that is very much an entertainment capital Mm -hmm. for that region of the world. And it has this big strategic plan. And the biggest thing is that it's so easy to get in and out of. And the airport in Vegas is on the Strip. Mm. It's super easy to fly in. Often it feels like the flights are kind of subsidized or less expensive because you can get in and out pretty quickly. Most of the discount airlines fly there. And you can be at your hotel within like 15 minutes of landing. So it has a kind of infrastructure like a city like Dubai does that's really set up to like get people in in large amounts so when you have a big sporting event because now formula one is in las vegas now pro sports teams are there the oakland athletics are moving Mm -hmm. there uh you know it's like there's a lot kind of happening that also allows for audiences to get in and out very quickly
1: i wonder why was there a feeling that the image of vegas needed to change what's behind this desire to rebrand do you think
2: a lot of it is obviously just like cold business too because you have to create a new customer base for a city like mm. Las Vegas, right? I mean, the one of the things that's interesting to me is part of doing research for this conversation and this story was going and looking at actually official visitor numbers that have existed for a while in Las Vegas' own, like, reporting of its tourism. Mm -hmm. And in 2002, which is something that, like, really blew me away, 95% of the visitors were white. Wow. And the average age was, like, around 50. Uh And 95% is a really large number. It's a huge number. And also the income bracket of who was going, it was a more middle class, whatever that term means, tourism destination. I think the big strategic decision has been not only has it become – Frankly, a far more luxury destination. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more expensive than maybe it once was. I've spoken to friends who grew up in California who talk about how parents or grandparents just could go for like a weekend it's and like have four a kind hours of, away or whatever. It's from not LA. that far, yeah. and you could kind of have a slightly cheap, kind of slightly not that expensive buffet kind of weekend. Mm-hmm. And I think the clay toward bringing super luxury restaurants, clubs, and hotels that are also very high end has been a big strategy that, of course, made the average income of the person coming higher. You can see that in the statistics. And the last report like this that was a visitor profile that was done for the year 2022 showed that the largest portion of the income sort of that people had that came was over $100,000, which is not a little bit. You know, that's, that's a significant amount. And so that's a big change from what it used to be. And then, like I said, the other big difference is that the majority of the visitors to Vegas spending visitors were white and the big change has been they're courting actively, millennials people in their 30s and 40s and a lot of people of color and they have made it actually frankly I would argue like one of the reasons that it's much more in the zeitgeist than it might have been is because of a lot of younger browner Hmm. um, and blacker audiences making it kind of a place to go again not ironically not cynically but genuinely to have a good time yeah and to see the people that they love uh, in in a way that they haven't seen them before and so for example again going back to that report the 2022 report showed that the average age of the visitor has now gone down to 40 um which is again a, a, you know much younger you might not think that's young i think that's young i am 40 but the point being that i do think it's a it's a kind of idea of a, of a millennial. many of them are unmarried mm-hmm. with disposable income yeah. and with and and of kind of much more diverse background than you used to have the visitor that you may have in your mind
1: the changes that you've seen like there is a younger browner blacker customer who's willing to spend more money on a premium entertainment experience and the bookings like the entertainment bookings reflect that i could see like an act like usher or even mariah those do feel like a bid for a very specific sort of like millennial of color customer but like wu-tang clan that to me is like they're, spe- they're I feel like I feel like I'm I'm being dog whistled at <laughs> to a certain degree. <laughs> Someone's like, "Come see this Wu Tang residency." I mean, it says a lot about sort of like I guess like hip hop being fifty, but that's almost screaming to a certain degree that they're trying to court a certain kind of customer. You know, you recently wrote an essay about like the changes that we're seeing in Vegas. In your essay, you you write about this post-pandemic market for maximalist entertainment. You know, the insatiable experience economy fueled by revenge travel, love that phrase, and irrational spending. Talk to me more about that. You
2: and I have talked about Barbenheimer's summer and <laughs> the Billion Girl's summer and all yeah. of that. All of that has, to me, I mean, you know, and I say that because it's crazy that at one point we discussed, well, where's the monoculture? I mean, you know, there may has there been a death to kind of all of us being connected because we're all living this kind of, you know, um, atomized existence. We're disconnected from each other. But then it seems like in pop, there has been a kind of like big big moment that we're in where we're kind of dominated by big stars again in some way. And, and they're also making content to like serve that that desire. I think that that's what you kind of see Vegas also very much demonstrating with these shows. And there's also been I think a certain sense that like if you're going to go to a show, you want to make it big. You want If you want to go with your friends to a concert, you'll travel for it. Right. Things that I think we didn't really think people were going to do before. Like, I used to go to shows before, but you kind of just didn't expect that much out of what you spent on them. So as they got expensive, the sense of their rarity got expensive. And Vegas mm. is primed to take advantage of that kind of experience, right? Because... You can add to it a great meal at some fancy restaurant. Mm. You, know, you could dress up a little bit. I mean, the thing I notice about all of these residencies going to them is like people are dressed way nicer than they would be at a normal um, show. Yes. This, is, I this mean, is not like a hoodies and jeans kind of
1: like sneaks kind of vibe. No, 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 no. People are not slapping on their Tevas to go sit in the audience. They are getting dressed up.
2: Right. Maybe this is what the music industry is also realizing is that at this point, the rarest experience that you're going to have with the artists that you love is an audience with them like this. Exclusive feeling of a of a timed experience that you can then continue reliving forever and ever in, the, in your phone or in your camera or when you upload it. It's an experience that kind of, you know, again, the experience economy, the notion that the next generation of visitor to Vegas is somebody who's looking for a premium experience that they can continue living off the kind of Uh, you know, the fragrance of for a long time. And I think that's a kind of play for a certain kind of travel. And I also think it's very evident that some people, not all people, of course, going back to that issue of inequality, are willing to pay that. I mean, the audience for The Sphere, the U2 show, I saw in that audience a lot of older people who clearly are flying in from all over the world. I mean, I understand why there are people there from Ireland, but people are flying in from everywhere to go there and, you know, often coming in, just for the night to see it. That requires some disposable income and the willingness to invest in that kind of industrial-scale premium entertainment. And so there's clearly a market for it that these that that Vegas recognizes it can build off of.
1: Okay, so it's clear from this conversation that Vegas is undergoing some sort of transformation. But the Vegas residency itself is also undergoing quite a transformation. Talk to me about what the image of the Vegas residency has been in the past.
2: Well, you know, I think the modern Vegas residency is accredited to Celine Dion, who basically took on Caesar's Palace, which had a, a kind of new coliseum. It's called the Coliseum Built for Her, which is wild in 2003. And it was a huge gamble at the time because it was just a few years after My Heart Will Go On mm-hmm. was like everywhere. So it wasn't as if she was past her prime or something like that, that that idea, which is also a kind of dated and problematic one, but we can talk about that another time. But the point being that she was very much still at the kind of peak of her career and she chose to go to vegas and have this extraordinary coliseum Mm. and then of course in 2013 you get kind of younger pop stars starting with britney spears who has this residency that's quite popular and, and goes on for a while of course once the conservatorship story came out it was made sort of clear that she was not doing so well while she was doing it. But regardless, she kind of brought a younger, sexier kind of pop energy to that idea.
1: She's like the first big millennial star to do a, a show like that in Vegas.
2: And in 2013, at the same time, DJ Calvin Harris kind of started a residency as well yes. that was another big example of like DJs were being flown in and staying in house to kind of be the DJs of big clubs for specific clubs or hotels yeah I think for artists it offers a place to be you know and Celine Dion is really the one who kind of made this case is that you can be located in one place get crazy levels of lavish production design and be able to be in one place and that provides a kind of stability and health that maybe as an artist is for certain people way better for their creativity mm-hmm. than having to kind of take Take then, the like, entire 100 and, and plus, to... like you know, I mean, not everybody can take the Renaissance to the world. I mean, that <laughs> strikes me as like, I don't know how many places Renee had to go last year. You know, it's a lot, a
1: lot of travel for that. For that horse. <laughs> one horse, it's <that's> a lot, <laughs> exactly. I totally see that as an advantage for like the star because it's like they can do all of these things that would be mind boggling to try to figure out from a logistics standpoint. Like you have to have the sort of Beyonce or Taylor Swift money that would allow you to have like two to four different versions of the set <laughs> that are traveling, traveling at, the same time. Yeah, totally. you. Like at all times. Not everybody can do that. Not everybody wants to do that. Exactly. There's this one line from your article about Vegas where you wrote about how culture follows money. And Vegas is kind of creating entertainment culture. But that culture, as you've mentioned, is led by big spending. I don't know. That seems like that could kind of signal something bleaker about the larger culture um, in that you can create a cultural footprint if you just have the cash.
2: Somebody who I spoke with when I was writing the story is is Jason King, who's a critic and a music scholar I really admire, who said that, you know, Vegas is somewhere that is itself a brand and these people are now brands. And this is a kind of a, a whole... Place designed around blockbuster brands re kind of asserting themselves and of course when we talk about branding and, and brands we're talking about money we're talking about becoming a subscriber basically right like if you buy into the Usher brand now, you're fully bought in. And I think that, you know, in an industry where music revenues are so flattened by, f- by streaming and by the way we all consume music, there was touring for a long time, which many people would just complain was like completely exhausting. And so a certain kind of act can clearly take a lot of advantage of this moment. And I think, you know, the thing that's amazing about the Usher show, which is really that residency really led to kind of his, or you could argue, reboot of his career. Talk
1: to me about that one, though, because, like, that was one, like, my heart hurts still that I didn't get to see I'm going to go on his tour. He announced his tour. I'm going to go on the tour. But I have to know, like, what was it like to be in the room for Usher's residency?
2: He had two iterations of this residency and the one that really became so famous is this show called My Way, named for his sort of really big hit album. The set is very intimate. It's a, it's an Atlanta strip club. Meets kind of like a sort of, you know, you're in the club. And, <laughs> and, there's, ro- and there's roller skating and there's like a kind of runway that comes out into the crowd. What? And I think one of the things that went viral was that you know, he's really very close to you, as oftentimes we have simulated sex going on on the runway. So it's like a lot of things are happening that make it very close than you would feel to sort of his, you know, his confessions. And then I'll also just mentioned because I'm a, a sort of tech nerd, is that Usher was performing at the Dolby Theater, yeah. which is actually the first concert venue, apparently, to be fully outfitted, with, outfitted Dolby with like Dolby Atmos. And so it's like the sound systems are extraordinary. And, you know, I think with shows, I mean, you you know, we forget that, like, in the past, it used to be that when you went to an arena or a stadium show, they kind of tried to do what they can. And people used to complain sometimes about sound, where they were located. You don't have that experience in these theaters. Many of them are new. The investments are made constantly to
1: make sure they're the most cutting-edge sort of audio visual experience. Now, I would have loved to see that show. But kind of returning to Vegas at large, I got one last question. Like, how successful has this rebrand been so far? Like, who is going And are they really spending enough for all these investments to be worth it? I mean, I think, uh, to be honest with you, the the
2: sphere is a really big risk. So I think a lot of these places, they've made the huge bet, to use that analogy, and now they're going to wait and see what the next few years look like. This is an incredibly business-savvy place where people are making calculations and updates constantly based on what makes sense. And I think that those strategies are going to be made to accommodate what is working and isn't working.
1: Thank you so much, Bilal, for explaining this current cultural moment with Vegas to me. Thank you so much for having me. That was NPR senior editor Bilal Qureshi. You can read his write-up on New Vegas right now on NPR.org. Coming up, while I've never professed to be a sports girly, when the Stanley Cup started making noise online, I honestly thought it was about the hockey championship. Imagine my surprise when all this frenzy was about a beverage canteen. What's even more mind-boggling is not the item itself, but the drama surrounding what goes in it. Water.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, now streaming only on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
3: This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com
1: slash switch. The Stanley Cup used to evoke images of hockey. But for the last few months, if you say Stanley Cup, most people will only picture one thing. Basically, a glorified metal big gulp. And this Stanley Cup has people freaking out.
4: You guys, I love it so much already. It's so pretty. It's so pretty. I can't even.
1: By now, you've probably seen the craze over the Stanley Quencher, a 40-ounce thermal cup made by Stanley, a drinkware and outdoor gear company. And if you haven't, picture Black Friday, 2005, but all over one cup. Well,
0: the Stanley Craze has made its way to the Central Valley. Shoppers lined up overnight in the rain
1: to get their hands on an exclusive Starbucks Stanley Cup that went on sale this morning. The quencher is something of a Cinderella story. A lonely cup, destined to be discontinued by her manufacturer, grabs the attention of the mommy blogosphere and poof, a bona fide craze.
0: No way!
1: Now, I've been watching this trend with my Stanley Cup from three years ago in hand, and I've noticed that it's not just about the cups. Beneath the trend, there's a strong cultural thirst for water that reveals a deeper well of issues. To talk about that, my guest today is Christy Harrison, dietitian, journalist, and author of The Wellness Trap and Anti-Diet. And as someone who's covered wellness and diet culture, She's got thoughts about how the Stanley Cup's popularity has been propelled by both their promises and failings. Christy, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Thanks, Brittany. Nice to be here. Okay, the Stanley Cup is just the latest iteration in our obsession here in America with hydration. Like, for years now, people have been using hydrate interchangeably with stay safe. (laughs) My editor used to end our group meetings. Telling us to hydrate. Now, I know there's intense interest in water online, but also, like, our culture at large is really into water. So I got to start with this very basic question
4: Why are we so obsessed with drinking water? It has become very tied up with diet culture and wellness culture. People, you know, looking to um, shrink their bodies or to find wellness in some way. I think it's partly that, right? The body shrinking thing Uh that goes back decades. You know, there's this old school diet rule that's like, you know, drink water instead of eating, right? You might just be, you you might not be hungry. You're you're actually thirsty. thirsty. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so there's that. And, you know, at the extremes, I mean, I see clients with disordered eating and eating disorders, and I have seen people who are, are drinking very disordered levels of water to try to, you know, suppress their hunger and they're not eating enough. And I've had a couple of clients end up in the emergency room because they drank so much water. Like it's, it can be, you know, extremely dangerous at that level. Hmm. And then I think there's also this wellness culture mandate of like drink water so that you'll have glowing skin, so that you won't have wrinkles, so that your your skin will be taut and dewy and you'll look young. Right. And it's really tied up with this notion of purity and that, you know, certain foods and beverages are pure and water is seen as kind of the pinnacle of like the purity hierarchy. Mm. There's a democratic element to it that it is pretty accessible, that water is within reach for so many people, and that it doesn't really require you to. Do much other than fill up your glass.
1: Yes. And oh my gosh, what a glass, everybody.
4: And what a glass.
1: (laughs) It's all about now. I mean, you know, as you're saying, the hydration fixation has been with us for a little bit. And now there's whole subcultures dedicated to it. You know, for those who don't know, Can you induct us into water
4: talk? Mm, Yes. So water talk is an internet subculture that's become popular in the last few years. Most sources sort of pin it back to one person who was the originator of this concept of putting flavors in your water and making sort of water mixology concoctions.
3: Flavored water today, you guys? Oh, cotton candy, pina colada. I mean, enough said.
4: It's like low calorie or zero calorie sweeteners, basically making your own diet beverages. Hmm. And the person who originated it, she had bariatric surgery and Uh, found that, you know, plain water was nauseating, but putting flavors in it made it more palatable. And so started doing this for, for that reason.
1: So the groundwork has been laid for water to be a thing, but why has the Stanley Cup been the one to capture the hearts and minds of so many?
4: I think it's a couple different things. I think it is this obsession with water and the idea that, you know, bigger is better when it comes to water, right? That like Mm -hmm. you're supposed to drink as much water as possible. There's this myth of eight glasses a day, which is totally not based in real science and yet it persists. And people think that, you know, even more than that is better and that they need to drink ounces upon ounces of water. So I think, you know, having a big glass that you don't have to fill up as often is part of the appeal. Mm -hmm. I think the, you know, beautiful sort of powdery finishes and the colors and the fact that it can match with different outfits. And there's a lot of marketing behind that. Mm -hmm. Releasing it in feminine colors and, Mm. you know, wider variety of colors where this was a product that appealed to like outdoorsy folks and construction workers and people who were like on the job all day running to keep their beverages cold, right? So to make that transition to this largely, you know, audience of like moms and teenagers is really interesting. Hmm.
1: Going back to the marketing behind the scenes at Stanley, you know, they targeted a lot of mommy bloggers with their marketing campaign. Why was that so strategic?
4: I think mommy bloggers have a lot of influence in determining what people buy and creating consumer trends. Mommy bloggers are aspirational but attainable. You know, they have these lives that feel within reach to their average followers, And I think with, you know, a lot of the breakdown of in-person connections through the pandemic and also the breakdown in, like, civic connections and participation and the decline of things like organized religions, people are looking for connection, community, Mm. belonging, right? And they're looking for, like, people they can trust to tell them, you know, to give them recommendations,
1: Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I and I see them as much more relatable than like a red carpet type of celebrity. Like these mommy bloggers, you see their lifestyle as more attainable. Like, you know, if I just took her advice on cleaning or time management, you know, my life could be as pretty as hers is. Whereas, you know, if I like see like, I don't know, like Jessica Alba or Beyonce, you know, I don't think I'm ever gonna quite get there. But like speaking to the influencer element of the Stanley Cup. I can't help but think of like this super viral moment from last year where this woman's car caught on fire. Mm-hmm. I mean, like burnt to a crisp, totally went up in flames. But her Stanley Cup, which was in her cup holder, remained in pretty good shape. It
4: was in a fire yesterday. It still has ice in it.
1: And Stanley, the company, learned about her video and offered to buy her a new car. Mm-hmm. I mean, I presume that the free press that they got from her video probably more than covered the cost of a brand new car.
4: I think so. Yeah, I think that was a huge element of it too. The fact that not only was the cup still standing while the inside of the car was burnt to a crisp, but there was ice in the cup still. You you shook it, and you could hear the ice. It's like that's quality. That's you know that's a product that it really is built to last. And I think there is some element of it that it's like it is a good product. You know, you have to you have to acknowledge there's some truth to it. Talk to me about what the
1: specific model or models that people, young women and moms are you know mm. buying up what does it signify the cup
4: yeah i think it signifies belonging and knowing what's cool knowing what's in being a part of a trend the fact that it's water, it's a reusable water cup, it's, you know, something that you can refill again and again and keep plastic out of the oceans. I think for some people, even if that's not the driving force, I think that's there sort of as a a loftier goal to make it feel like this has a purpose beyond just yourself. Like, I'm helping save the planet with this purchase, but it's also belonging to, like, being cute and fun and sort of in the know mm-hmm. and you know, being a part of the culture, being a part of the conversation. I think there's something about like knowing what's what's of the moment, being on trend mm-hmm. that always makes people feel like they belong and and feel part of something bigger than themselves.
1: You're not just signaling with the Stanley Cup that you're in the know, but I think you're also kind of signaling that like, I care about my health, but also I care about my health
4: in the right, newest way way totally yeah you know diet and wellness culture go through so many cycles and there's so many trends that come and go because ultimately things don't work right it's green juice and you know hot yoga and whatever with water i think it's so elemental it's so Mm. simple i think it can feel like no this is really the thing because there's nothing other than this you know it's it's so basic Companies like Stanley are selling the vessels to put the water in, but the water mm. itself is, you know, mostly free and hmm. is widely available, and it's something that people can have every day whenever they want to a certain extent. You know? hmm.
1: Hmm. the Stanley Cup itself, despite you know some of the I don't know, kind of the halo effect that it, it can confer on on you know its user, such as you know seeming environmentally conscious, seeming like you care about your health, seeming in the know. The Stanley Cup does have some flaws. Like, it's gotten a lot of mileage out of being this reusable cup that's great for the environment. And, you know, when I think back to that car on fire, how the Stanley Cup made it out unscathed with cold ice still inside, you know, it's not plastic, sure, but it also, like, these cups don't look like they'll degrade anytime soon. And I suppose, like, if, people were kind of sensible about it and only bought one and they just used that for however many years. That seems like a reasonably sustainable purchase, but as, you know, you and I have both seen, there's people with like collections of 30 on their <laughs> wall. That's the, you know, the, you're not going to use all 30 of those. <laughs> <or whatever. laughs> no. That's not going to happen. Also, the company recently admitted that each of its insulated cups has like a lead part in them. Which, you know, it ain't so great for the environment and it also ain't so great for your health. You know, granted, the cup would have to fully crack open for you to really be exposed to it. But it's kind of interesting to think about like how the the Stanley Cup has this marketing around it that has been so potent. But, you know, there are some actual facts about the cup itself kind of push back upon the marketing of the Stanley Cup.
4: Yeah, totally. And the fact that it's such a trend now and that there's people who are collecting 30 of them. I think are probably the same people that are going to abandon them when the next viral water bottle comes along, right? Mm. Where do all those cups end up that people have been collecting?
1: I can't help but notice that like this rise in the Stanley Cup is also coinciding with two other things that I think are really important. One, recent research that's talked about like the amount of microplastics that are in Mm. water that comes in plastic bottles, but also like Stanley Cups are really popular at a point where, you know, some Americans still don't have access to clean drinking water at all.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: What do you make of the Stanley Cup craze when you consider that clean drinking water isn't a given for all Americans?
4: Yeah, I think it's it it makes it feel sort of like a misplaced craze. Like there's a lot of energy that could be used to actually creating equity and fixing these problems, you know, that is going towards consumption instead. The focus on this trend and, you know, the the cultural conversation around this trend is missing a lot of discussion of those inequities and those problems. Too many places in the U.S. don't have clean drinking water, mm. and that's a huge problem and, and not something that's going to be solved by, you know, people buying Stanley Cups and creating a viral trend <laughs> for water. Yeah,
1: in some ways it feels like an individual solution to a host of systemic problems, like the ubiquity Mm -hmm. of single use plastic, microplastics in our water supply, barriers in public health that make people really want to focus on really accessible solutions, like, you know, possibly drinking more water. Because if you have access to clean drinking water, it could be easier to drink more water than to like Try to find a good dentist that takes your insurance <laughs> or what have you. It feels like we want easy solutions to these huge, complicated problems, but you know, to your point, ultimately, the problem is not going to get solved with that approach.
4: Yeah, for sure. And I think that individual responsibility approach to systemic problems is so ubiquitous in wellness culture. I think so much of wellness culture is this idea that you're individually responsible for your own wellness and that you can prevent or reverse disease. You can individually make quote unquote right choices.
1: Are we more likely to buy into wellness culture because we in the U.S. don't have universal health
4: care? I think so. I think so. I think the popularity of wellness culture here speaks to the lack of universal health care, this messaging around individual responsibility that we have here that you don't see in a lot of countries that have universal healthcare where there's a sense of collective responsibility for each other, for taking care of each other's well-being. Because of that, you know, people feel kind of thrown to the wolves. People feel like they're just out there on their own, having to having to figure it out. And then the wellness industry has really come into this void, this vacuum, to fill a lot of the needs that are going unfilled in our healthcare system.
1: Well, thank you so much, Christy. This was a great conversation.
4: Thank you, Brittany. It's really fun to talk with you.
1: That was Christy Harrison, author of The Wellness Trap.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co op. For the next half minute, REI wants to remind you that you can't make more time, but you can make the most of it by calling timeout. Timeout on the algorithms, comfort zones, and life on autopilot. REI believes that getting outside is the best way to get out of our routines and instead find new routes. When you're ready, they have the gear, clothing, classes, and advice to get you started. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com forward slash opt outside.
3: Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares why Betterment believes
4: cash can be a strategic choice. There are times when the market is volatile, when customers are a little nervous about investing. We came to understand that there was an opportunity to introduce cash as part of an investing strategy and to give back yields to the customer. Learn more
3: about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Homes.com. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching, so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24 7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. Hey, Brittany. Hey,
1: Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hey Brittany, it's Simone.
0: So I know that you saw that Beyonce's dropping her new haircare line, Sacred. What are your thoughts
1: on it? You think you're going to get a bottle? Simone, I am so glad that you called in with this question because I'm not going to lie to you. Now, do I respect Beyonce as perhaps our greatest living performer? Absolutely. However, when you're a superstar like Beyonce, you have what's called iconography. Just little things here and there that... Somebody can just see one aspect of your image and they can immediately know that I'm talking about you. Like, for instance, with Michael Jackson and his sparkly glove, we only need to see just that one aspect of the outfit, like Tina Turner and a short Bob Mackie dress. Shoot, like Cher and a long Bob Mackie dress, okay? We know these people's iconography. A major piece of iconography associated with Beyonce, Giselle, Knowles, Carter are her fabulous wigs. They look like they grow out of her scalp. And she has been known for the quality and the beauty of these wigs for pretty much her entire career. When you see a long honey blonde wig blowing in the wind or in a stage fan, we know we're talking about Beyonce. And on top of it, Beyonce's mother, Miss Tina, Mama Tina, she was a hairstylist. One of the most successful hairstylists in Houston. So Beyonce grew up in the beauty shop. It makes sense that she would have an interest in perhaps selling a product to us that had to do with beauty, hair, and self-presentation. That's not surprising to me. But if most of the photos that exist of you out there in the world show you in a $100,000 wig, If you're selling hair products, I don't want conditioner from you. Baby, I don't know what your hair looks like. I don't want conditioner. I want some visuals. Now, all that being said, like Beyonce said, I'm going to try and figure out how to put my honey blonde highlights on my $200,000 wigs into a nice $250 wig for the girls to order online. It'd be a different story. But it just confounds me from a business perspective why you would want to penetrate an already very saturated market for celebrity hair care products, right? Given everything I've just said, am I signed up for the sacred emails? Absolutely. Am I going to buy a sacred product? Probably, honestly, probably. Is it going to work on my hair? Who knows? I don't know. Does it work on Beyonce's hair? I don't know. I didn't see her hair. And that's okay. Like I said, it's okay. It's your business. It's your personal business, but when you want it to be your business business, we got to see the results. So those are my thoughts about Sacred with all that in mind. Simone, I hope you and your hair have a fabulous weekend and Sacred, I'll be watching. Hey everybody, Brittany Luce here and thank you so much again for listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. Before you leave, I have one small ask. If you have a spare 10 minutes, you can help us out by completing a short anonymous survey about how we've been doing with this show. Tell us what you like and how we can improve at npr.org slash IBAM survey. You'll be doing all of us here at IBAM a huge favor. That's npr.org slash IBAM survey. Thank you so much. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Barton Girdwood Alexis Williams Liam
0: McBain Corey Antonio Rose
1: This episode was edited by
0: Jessica Plachek
1: Engineering support came from Robert Rodriguez We have fact-checking help from Katie Doggart Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams Our VP of Programming is Yolanda Sanguini All right, that's all for this episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Talk soon.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Get the service you deserve. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
3: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Acorn TV. Stream stories from around the world. From sinister suspense to charming comedies and clever crime dramas like My Life is Murder, starring Lucy Lawless. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects.